All right, here we are. We're going to continue on with the Sermon on the Mount this morning and uh, see how far we can get. Actually, we're only going to get one more verse, but uh, it's going to be good. We're going to dig deep. Let me ask you all a question. Do you ever think about why you're here? And I don't mean here in this room. You know, Do you think about why you're here breathing on this planet? Daily. Daily. <laughs> Daily. Yeah. Hopefully that's going well for you, though. Yeah, Angel. Very good. Yeah. You know, we're all looking for purpose. We're all looking for meaning. And sometimes we're just looking for God to tell us what to do, right? So that we can find that purpose and that meaning. But meanwhile, a lot of us are very unhappy right here and right now. We're looking for that meaning and we're looking for that purpose as an outcome to the end of our tasks or an outcome to what we can accomplish or an outcome after so many years. And it takes away from the experience of what's going on right here and right now. And I think what we need to do is reframe the way we look at purpose, the way we look at meaning, so that we can get in line with what Jesus is trying to tell us. You know, I always have to kind of inwardly smile at myself when people who uh, believe in reincarnation, for instance, you know, when they talk about their past lives, you know, they're always a warrior princess or, you know, some romantic figure from the past. They're never the guy sweeping up the camel dung around the pyramids, right? It's always some imagined great, great past life. And when people talk about God's will, they talk about a future that God has for them, a career, a ministry, a cause, something that is great in the future. And what imagining God's will in the future does for us is the same thing that imagining an amazing past in reincarnation does for us because we're not happy with the present. And so we have to imagine outward something that gives us a sense of meaning and purpose that we're lacking right now. But of course, any meaning and purpose that isn't grounded in this moment is not going to get us very far. Why is our present not good enough for us? Why do we have to imagine these things? Why is it always out there someplace that we're looking for? Why can't we see purpose in the present moment? I wanted to just read a couple of lines from Brene Brown. She is um, brilliant at this. And, oh, you know what? I didn't bring that page. Could you hand me that, Scotty? I was thinking I didn't need that page, but I did need that page. And you all have it here, too. She said, I started with connection. You all know who Brene Brown is? She's a sociologist. Um, she's a, now a famous writer and speaker, and uh, she's, she's known internationally. But she spent about 10 years researching relationships and people and what made them tick before she wrote one of her first books. And what she came up with this, and, and if you have a chance, if you haven't seen The Power of Vulnerability, which is about a 20-minute long TED Talk, um, take a look at it. It's, it's really well done. But she says, after all of this research and this study, she says, I started with connection because by the time you're a social worker for 10 years, what you realize is that connection is why we're here. It's what gives purpose and meaning to our lives. This is what it's all about. The ability to feel connected is neurobiologically, that's how we're wired. And it's why we're here. So she says it straight out. It's all about connection. Connection is our purpose. Could it be that simple? <laughs> 
when we think about our purpose, it gets really complicated really fast. There's a lot of moving parts to this, you know, a lot of scenarios that we have to imagine. Could it be that simple? Is connection, simple connection, the reason that we're here? And can we get away from the sense of accomplishment being tied into our purpose? Because we want to think that it's all about accomplishment. Can we believe that maybe connection and not accomplishment is really what this is all about? That there's really nothing more important to us as human beings as connection. Think about your best moment in life or one of your best moments. Got one in mind right now? A peak moment, one that just really, if you close your eyes, you're just there again. Now, I guarantee you, it's going to be about connection in some way, shape, or form. If you're at the top of Half Dome in Yosemite and it was just a transcendent moment, you're connected, connected with nature. If it's the baby on your chest, your first baby, that's a moment of connection. If it's a wedding, if it's a first kiss, you know, all of these things that we experience as humans that are so intense and take us to these transcendent places. These are the ones that are immersed in connection. Marion and I just had our wedding anniversary earlier this week, and we were able to get away. Only two nights and two days, but you know we got away. And we only went about 100 miles south, so it, it wasn't like a big fancy thing, but it was so nice just to be away. Now, we didn't accomplish a darn thing except where we were going to eat next. That was about our greatest accomplishment during those two days. But I'm telling you, it was just a great time because we actually just got to connect, just spend time with each other, kind of unadulterated and undistracted because, you know, just turn everything off and just be. Not about accomplishment, about connection. Now, the moment that you thought about you're thinking, well, maybe that was a tie. Maybe it was tied to connection. Maybe it was the degree that you got that you sweat blood for for years. You know, maybe it was a job that you got. You know, maybe it was your children's accomplishments. But it's tied also to accomplishment. And you're saying, okay, well, wait a minute now. There's accomplishment in there. Is that part of the purpose? And truthfully, it's never either or. As we go through these things, it's always both and. You know. It's not dualistically white or black, on or off, one or zero. There is a connection between those things as well. Accomplishment can bring meaning and purpose to our lives, of course, but only in the context of connection. I want you to think about that. What would your accomplishment have meant if it also wasn't connecting you to someone you love? or connecting you to someone that you are able to help change their lives, at least the circumstances, for a moment. Accomplishment brings purpose and meaning to us only in the context of connection. Connection gives meaning and purpose to accomplishment and not the other way around. And I think that's the primary thing we need to see because these things get so conflated, they get so tied up with each other. And the truth of the matter is, is that we chase accomplishment way more than we chase connection. Accomplishment is everything. It's what gives us the sense of having that, remember those energy centers we talked about, 
security and survival, affection and esteem, power and control. Accomplishments gives us a sense of having a handle on those things. Connection's a little too ephemeral. But really, when you come right down to it, it's connection that gives us meaning and purpose, ultimately. We have to see the connection in everything. Remember the, the movie Avatar? Man, it's getting old, isn't it? Isn't that like 15, 20 years now that thing came out? I always thought it was just a retelling of Dances with Wolves but uh, you know, in space, but there you go. But the coolest thing about it that I remember is that there was this whole neural network around the entire planet that every living thing was attached to. And the, the sentient beings could connect to the animals by you know, connecting up physically. But even the plants and everything was one neural network. It was one living being. And I thought that was, that was great. That was interesting. Because really, that's what's going on in our world here now, even though we can't see it. You know, not in such a physical or overt way. But everything is connected. There is that neural network. There is that spiritual network, at least, that connects everything. Everything that we see, no matter how diverse, really is just one thing. One thing that ha breaks down into all these different diverse elements. But really, it is that unity that is the base of it all. It's unseen, and it's unvalued by most of us. The visible world of accomplishments screams at us constantly. The unseen world of connection is silent. I remember one person telling me that the, uh, as a pastor early on, that the Holy Spirit is a gentleman, never going to assert itself on you. Actually, he should have said that the Holy Spirit was a gentle woman because ruha is a feminine word in Aramaic. But at any rate, this visible world is so loud, it captures all of our attention. The genius of the Hebrews, the ancient Hebrews, was to see through that diversity, to see through that duality where there had to be many gods that had their hands on different aspects of their lives. You know, a good God, a bad God, multiple gods. To be able to see through that to one God? How does that happen? That's the amazing thing about the story of Abraham, that he was able to break through to the understanding that God was one. Echad, one. Unity, multiple things functioning as one. The Hebrews named their God Eloah in Hebrew, Alaha in Aramaic, which means oneness. It means unity. It means the greatest of this unity. And it means multiple things functioning as one. They saw that as the, the basic and absolute nature of their God. God was one. The Shema, the greatest prayer of Israel from Deuteronomy 6, right? Shema Yisrael. Ahad Eloheinu. It's, it's the God is one. Echad. This is something that they come over and over and over. It became the basis of the three great monotheistic religions of Judaism and Christianity and Islam, all based upon that intuitive leap, that break. Somehow they were able to see through the facade and see what was really happening. Non-dual. One God. Now our purpose here is to make our purpose the same as God's purpose, if you want to look at it that way. 
If we made our purpose to make our purpose the same as God's purpose, then we are going to be all about connection. We're going to be all about unity because God is all about unity. The great prayer of Jesus at John 17, the entire chapter, one prayer, all about unity. Make them one as we are one, Father. It's all about becoming one. It's about seeing the world in this particular way. And yet, we continue to cling to some form of accomplishment as our purpose. And anything less than that just seems wrong. It seems too simple. It seems that we're not involved enough. I mean, I'm speaking for myself now. I don't know about you, but this has been my struggle for the years. I want to be involved. I want to have some say-so. I want to accomplish something. I want that to be purpose. You know, Build a church. Write a book. Do something, right? And yet, what does that all mean at the end of things? What am I going to look back on with my last breath? Are those things going to be what fill me with meaning and purpose? Or is it going to be the connection? Nothing wrong with writing a book or building a church, having a family, building a career. But where does the meaning really come from? This is what we need to really figure out. If you have your handouts, the next little couple lines there comes from the sayings of the Desert Fathers. These are the men and women in the third and fourth centuries who headed out into the desert to try to find meaning and purpose again when the whole church and Roman world seemed to be going insane at the time. Sound familiar? An elder said, If you see a young monk by his own will climbing to heaven, take him by the foot and throw him to the ground because what he is doing is not good for him. Now that's a totally counterintuitive statement. What's wrong with climbing to heaven? Isn't that our purpose too? Getting to heaven, right? But see, climbing is all about accomplishment. And more importantly, climbing and accomplishment is using the tools that are forged in those emotional programs we talked about last week. Remember those energy centers? Survival and security? Esteem and affection, power and control. Those basic needs in early childhood force us to create emotional programs, unconscious programs, to get those things that we are driven to get. Jesus' time in the wilderness, the three temptations correspond to each one of those three areas. That was Jesus' time for purging and to get down to what was driving him and cut the ties, cut the attachments. Now these emotional programs then pop into our consciousness as attachments and aversions. And that drives all of our obsessive compulsive behavior. So everything is connected in that way as well. But the tools that we use for accomplishment are the tools that come out of that system, come out of those emotional programs, driven by our attachments and our aversions, what we like and what we don't like. And so they are part of the problem. If what we're really trying to do is to step away from that noise, see the connection, see the unity in all things, and then use the tools but not identify with them. They are not who we are. They are tools that we use. We realize a hammer is just a hammer. It's a tool. It can do good things and can do bad things, but I am not the hammer. I know that, but I don't know that when I'm using these psychological and emotional programs. And if it's tied in with accomplishment and we think the accomplishment is our identity and who we are and that gives us meaning and purpose, the whole thing, Jesus is telling us, is a blockage to being able to go to the freedom that he has for us 
if we are willing to and able to let go of all of this stuff. We're obsessed with control and with power. We're obsessed often with seeking personal perfection. And I love what Richard Rohr had to say about that. Seeking perfection is the greatest enemy of the good. We never get to good because we're always seeking perfection. We never stop long enough in any one moment to just enjoy the good because everything's a flyover moment to that ultimate outcome that, of course, never comes. It makes us miss the quiet connection that is what heaven and kingdom are all about. Kingdom, heaven, is not acquired. It's simply received. Simply received. But it can't be received as long as we are filled with all of this obsessive compulsive action. If it comes right down to it, when it comes right down to it, kingdom, heaven, is what is left in us when we strip away everything that we're clinging to and we realize that heaven is already here. The kingdom that Jesus is talking about is already within us, only obscured. And this is what Jesus' way to Father is all about. The only way to Father, he said, is to let go, to sell everything, to ruthlessly strip away what we're holding on to for our security and for our control and for our power. Now, chapter 7 that we've been dealing with right now is an outline of that way, the steps that we need to take in order to get there. And they all work as a piece. They're all connected. And so I know we've been going back over these, but I think it's important. And every time we do, we're looking at them from a little bit different, little bit different perspective. Again, if you have your, your inserts, that little down arrow, that, that simply means this is what we're going to stop clinging to. This is what we're going to let go of. This is what we're going to strip away. So right at Matthew 7, verse 1 and 2, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. What's Jesus talking about here? He's saying stop clinging to the code of law. Let go of it. We're also legalistic, naturally. The world works by the code of law, somebody's law. Can we stop, let go of it? Can we become people of relationship instead of rules? And if you're taking any notes, that's a good one. Can we become people of relationship, not rules? Because the rules that we impose are already our own burden our own blockage. They keep us from seeing that we'll never be able to obey our way into heaven. Can't do it. Because heaven, kingdom, is transformation from the inside to the outside. Not just complying with an outside force. And so this is what's going here. Can we stop clinging to the code of law? Can we become people of relationship, present, seeing what is around us, instead of just importing an overall rule of law. People of relationship and not rules. At verse 6, do not give what is holy to dogs. Don't throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Jesus is saying, stop clinging to the code of righteousness. 
Now, for the Jews, that meant giving alms, giving charity, right? Prayer and fasting. That's how they rated their righteousness. But what they became was just another code, another law. You had to do these things. They had numbers attached to all these things that you had to do. It became an obligation. If it's an obligation, then it's no longer a state of your heart. Stop clinging to the code of righteousness. Become people of compassion, not obligation. Not more rules. Meet others at their point of need. Be present enough to see what their needs actually are. Casting your pearls before swine, giving what is holy to dogs, is an indiscriminate giving of what you judge people need rather than seeing what they really do and what they don't at any given moment. To be able to give what is needed at the moment and not what we judge they need is being a person of compassion. Starting in verse 7, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now we Westerners who so idolize accomplishment, we look at that and what do we see? We see more accomplishment. If we work really hard, if we ask the right questions, you know, if we seek, we're going to find that thing outside of us that we can bring in and acquire and complete ourselves. And then everything is going to be open that we knock on. But if you're coming from the context that Jesus is coming to, not only in Hebrew, from Hebrew at large, but also from his own teaching and from his own being as preserved in the Gospels, we know that all we really need is already here. It's not accomplished. It's simply realized. There's this huge difference in terms of what asking, seeking, and knocking means. And we went over that a few weeks ago, so we don't want to take the time to do it again. But what is Jesus saying here? He's saying stop clinging to individual advancement. Stop clinging to individual perfection. That's seeking of perfection. Become people of gratitude, not entitlement. People of gratitude. Very different than people who feel entitled because they've earned something. Realize that heaven, that kingdom is not accomplished. It's always simply received in grace. It's a gift that we could never give ourselves. What is it that we're trying to accomplish or earn if it's a gift that cannot be given to ourselves? The hard work here is not in the acquiring. The hard work is in the letting go to open up the space to be able to receive something that is so radically different. And then starting at verse 9, Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf of bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Jesus is saying, stop clinging to religion, to your ritual practice, to your theology. These are more just forms of power and control, aren't they? The ritual that I practice that is supposed to have a one-to-one correspondence with the outcome I seek, the theology that gives me the mental illusion that I have some handle on God's nature or the Godhead itself. Religion, all forms of power and control. Stop clinging to that. Become people of trust, not fear. The child that Jesus is talking about in his image 
just knows if he asks his father, he asks his mother, he's going to get good things. That's what loving parents do. Obviously, in human relationships, not all parents are loving. And so that's another lesson that the child has to learn. And he'll or she will create emotional programs for that too. But generally speaking, the trust of the child is what Jesus is highlighting here. Become people of trust, not fear. Have the willingness to let go, to become vulnerable, so that gifting can become possible for you. Our relationship as God's children means that we will never be denied because God isn't like human parents. But what Jesus is saying is even if those of you who are evil, right? Bisha, not mature yet, not ready for prime time yet, still know how to give good things to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give these things? We won't be denied because of our relationship. It's not about power and control. It's about trust and gratitude. So look what Jesus is saying here. Become people of relationship, not rules. Become people of compassion, not obligation. People of gratitude, not entitlement. And become people of trust and not fear. And all of this, this whole first section of chapter 7, is leading us to verse 12. Because verse 12 becomes kind of the summary. It becomes the one statement that encapsulates encapsulates everything else that he has talked about. In everything, therefore. Therefore. Whenever you see therefore, that's a connecting word. It connects you to everything that went before. This is the context. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Law and prophets is shorthand for all of the Hebrew written scriptures. They had Torah, law, and prophets. This is it. He's saying everything that is included in all of that writing is summed up right here. Just treat others the way you want to be treated. In everything, becoming people of relationship, compassion, gratitude, trust, all of that has to do with being able to just treat others the way you want to be treated. Not having those compulsions, those programs, those aversions, and those attachments get in the way of simply treating others as you want to be treated. It's not another rule. We call this the golden rule, and that's the worst thing we can do to it. It's not a rule. It's not another obligation. It's not another thing you must do. It is the result of your transformation from inside to outside. How many of us can really do that? Consistently treat people as we want to be treated. It's the result of all of this process. It's the result of this transformation that makes this possible. And if we treat it as just another rule, we miss the whole point. This is a way of living in relationship. But all responsible philosophies and religions have the same point. Did you know that? I'm going to prove it to you right now. Christianity, we just heard, right? In everything, do unto others as you would have them do to you, for this is the law and the prophets. Judaism, centuries before Jesus, had the same statement, but in the negative. What is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole Torah. All the rest is commentary. Go learn it. (laughs) This was Hillel's formation. Same thing, but in the negative. Buddhism. Treat not others in ways that you yourself would find hurtful. Confucianism, one word which sums up the basis of all good conduct, loving kindness. 
Do not do to others what you do not want done to yourself. Confucius, Analects. Hinduism, this is the sum of duty. Do not do to others what would cause pain if done to you. Islam, not one of you truly believes until you wish for others what you wish for yourself. Jainism, one should treat all creatures in the world as one would like to be treated. Taoism, regard your neighbor's gain as your own gain and your neighbor's loss as your own loss. Baha'i, lay not on any soul a load that you would not wish to be laid on you and desire not for anyone the things that you would not desire for yourself. Zoroastrianism, <laughs> do not do unto others whatever is injurious to yourself. There is this way of relating to others that is universal. We recognize it when we see it. We know the basic goodness of it. But like Paul, the things that we want to do, we don't do. And the things we don't want to do, we do because of all of this noise, all of these unconscious programs that are driving us in ways that we don't even understand. We don't even know they're happening. To be able to break through that, to be able to just live this universal truth of decency is a huge accomplishment. But it's not accomplished in the way that we normally think. It's accomplished by this letting go, this stripping away. If we look at this as just another rule, nothing changes in us. We remain essentially the same people using the same tools to accomplish what can't be accomplished. And we don't become free. We don't become free of all of these processes. We can become compliant. We can be doing what we're told. But we're not living in kingdom. We're not enjoying that freedom. Our moments are still not good enough because it's not about obedience. This is the picture of connection in action, the person who can live according to this reciprocity. When the completed action that we have undertaken in relationship flows effortlessly from inside to outside, then kingdom, then heaven knocks, quote unquote. And we talk about knocking in that former passage there as sounding a note or actually driving a tent peg, which would create the space of the tent. It's realizing something in 3D. It's realizing something in sound waves that everyone can then partake in. It's establishing a connection point. When we have undergone this transformation, heaven knocks in the sense that it is realized, it opens, it has become real in our lives. And not only our lives, but in the lives that we touch. And... At that point, we have found our true self in connection with everyone else and all else. True self, beneath those basic needs, beneath those emotional programs, those attachments, those aversions, compulsions, obsessions, triggers. We have found the truth that really can make us free of all of that. Now, what does a man or a woman look like if they have moved into this space? Well, Jesus starts the whole Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, right? He tells us in those eight Beatitudes, blessed are you when you are humble, when you are meek, when you are poor in spirit, when you are unified in purpose, when you are a peacemaker, all of these things. But I think sometimes, again, hearing it from a different culture can maybe help us to lock in a little bit more what Jesus is saying, because I believe that this statement, this little story from Taoism, 
tells us the same thing that Jesus is, but with some more words that maybe we can grab onto. And it's called the true man. And you can substitute woman for that too. We're not going to be sexist in here. What is meant by a true man? True men of old were not afraid when they stood alone in their views. No great exploits, no plans. If they failed, no sorrow. No self-congratulation in success. They scaled cliffs, never dizzy. Plunged in water, never wet. Walked through fire and were not burnt. Thus their knowledge reached all the way to Tao. The true men of old slept without dreams, woke without worries. Their food was plain. They breathed deep. True men breathed from their heels. Others breathed with their gullets, half strangled, in dispute. They heave up arguments like vomit. For the fountains of passions lie deep. The heavenly springs are soon dry. The true men of old knew no lust for life, no dread of death. Their entrance was without gladness, their exit yonder without resistance. Easy come, easy go. They did not forget where from, nor ask where to, nor drive grimly forward, fighting their way through life. They took life as it came, gladly. They took death as it came, without care, and went away yonder, yonder. They had no mind to fight the way. They did not try, by their own contriving, to help the way along. These are the ones we call true men. Minds free, thoughts gone, brows clear, faces serene. Were they cool? Only as cool as autumn. Were they hot? No hotter than spring. All that came out of them came quiet, like the four seasons. I love that characterization. Because spiritual life is not about climbing to heaven. It's about falling to heaven. And we never think about it that way. Do you know when you're falling? Do you know when you're falling in love? How do you know you're falling in love? All the songs make sense. Come on! Who here has fallen in love at one time in their lives? Either with a significant other, a child, a pet, a dog, a puppy. You know, I'm sure we've all fallen in love, right? Did you work at it, falling in love? Did you have to accomplish it? Did you have to grind it out? Did you have to climb up to falling in love? In fact, if you worked at it at all, you probably worked against it. You were probably trying to hold it off because you know what it could bring to you and the pain that it could bring. This is why we call it falling in love. It's not something that we do. It's something that we allow to happen. When you were a kid, did you ever play in a pool? And at some point, did you ever fall backward into the pool? You know, just let yourself fall, you know? Try to get that, that scene back in your mind right now. You know, hot summer day. The pavement is hot except where the water is. So you go to the edge of the pool. You turn around backwards and you edge up to the end and you curl your toes around that lip, you know, the, right at the edge there. And your heels are hanging out in the air. 
and you know the water's behind you. Last time you looked, it was still there. You close your eyes, you hold your arms out, tilt your head back. And then when you're ready, you just push down with your toes, right? Just push down. And you feel yourself going back. And you know at a certain point, you're going to hit that tipping point, that place where there's no return, right? Gravity takes. Now, you can still chicken out, but what do you do? You jump and you pull your feet up and you go in feet first. But if you just let yourself fall, and you know there's no going back now, and you fall. Last time you looked, there was water there. Is it still there? I don't know. My eyes are closed. And then there's that hard, cold slap, and you go into the, into the water. That's the sensation. Just standing there with eyes closed, pushing down with your toes, and feeling that moment where you can't go back. That's falling. Falling in love. Falling into heaven. It's going to feel the same way. What's the difference between liking someone and actually falling in love? When you like someone, you're keeping that safe, safe distance, aren't you? You know, you're keeping a modicum of control. You like the person, but you haven't fallen. You haven't lent back to that tipping point where there's no return. Because falling in love means to be completely committed, completely open, completely vulnerable to the other, but also finally completely ready to receive whatever the other has for you. Now, in human relationships, that's a frightening prospect because we don't know what's coming. There may be love coming from the other person or there may be heartbreak. We don't know. This is why we fear falling in love and we guard ourselves. And when we've gotten hurt, then we go right back into that defensive crouch, that defensive posture because we don't want to feel that again. And we're asking, what if I get hurt? Well, the better question is, what if I never get hurt? What if I live my life in such a way that I never get hurt, that I never fall, that I never really let go? Because to do that is to never be ready to receive. We're never hurt because we're never really connected. We've never entered into that kind of intimacy, that kind of connection where we don't know where we end and the other begins. Our purpose in life is not to stay safe. Our purpose in life is to connect, which means that we need to risk laying down everything. And this is why Jesus talks about the cross. This is why the cross is the central event and the central symbol in Christianity, because it is the the metaphor, it is a symbol of Jesus laying everything down. No greater love is there than a person laying down his life for his friend. But to go to the cross with your vulnerability completely intact, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. To stay in that place of connection with these people, no matter what they're doing, that is the ultimate image of what we're talking about here. To remain connected to remain intimately one with each other. How do we know that we're falling to heaven? I'd say because then all Jesus' songs make sense. All the crazy things that he says in those red letters, all the stories he tells, the parables, the metaphors, the huge hyperbolic language, 
all of the paradoxical things that just spin our heads around, suddenly they start to make sense when we have fallen into the same space that he's speaking out of. Then we understand. Then we see the connection. Then we understand why he uses the crazy words that he uses. Because nothing else is going to even point in the direction of what we're talking about here. It's counterintuitive. It takes us where we really don't want to go because we have to give up our power and control. We aren't in control. To take on that vulnerable dependent position is just goes against everything in us. Jesus' words seem so confusing and so absurd until we finally fall into that con- connection to let go of all our trying to accomplish things, our climbing up, trying to control the road. If we can just lean back, let gravity have its way, everything changes. Because once we let go of our illusions as a human being and see God as Jesus saw his Father and articulated him to us, then and only then will we know what's coming when we completely trust and let our hearts fall. And what we know is what's coming, it's only good news. And the good news is, there is no bad news. Let's pray. Father, it is all good news. In your presence, there is only good news. But it's so hard for us to believe that. It's so hard for us to trust that. Help us, help us to take the steps we need to take, to take the risks that we need to take to experience in you that there is no reason for the fear. Our fear of punishment is not in you. We punish ourselves. You don't need to do it. Our fear of abandonment is not who you are. You are always present. Help us to experience that in our own lives, moment by moment, day by day, until we start to live that ourselves and realize that we can risk treating others the way that we want to be treated and realize that is the best we're ever going to feel and the more f- most fulfilled, the most purposeful and meaningful that we can ever express. So thank you, Lord. Take us where we need to go and never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.